The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. And guys, we have got an absolutely jumbo-sized episode for you today as we welcomed along Dr. Luke Bonetto, a consultant neuro-ophthalmologist, to talk us through optic neuropathy. This could very easily come up, most likely as a station 5 in the MRCP Paces. And Luke helped us talk through the important elements of a history, the critical parts of examination, and then gave us a structure of how to go about diagnosing these patients. Don't forget, there's Quiz the Consultant at the end of the show, and Dr. Bonetto's quiz this week is a firecracker. You absolutely can't miss it, so look forward to that towards the end of the show. Just another shout-out for your five-star reviews. If you like the podcast, please do smash that five-star button on your podcasting app of choice. But without further ado, let's get into the show with Dr. Luke Bonetto. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, and this episode is covering a topic which you certainly should not turn a blind eye to in your preparation for the MRCP Paces. Today's episode, we are joined by someone who, in his own words, is raging against the dying of the light. He goes on to clarify that he isn't dying himself, he is just trying to save his patient's sight. He is a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Bristol and a consultant neuro-ophthalmologist. It's Dr. Luke Bonetto. So thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Thank you very much for having me, Sam. Now, can you briefly explain to the listeners specifically, what is it you do as a neuro-ophthalmologist and what sort of problems do you encounter more frequently in this role as opposed to general neurology? Well, first of all, I should add that um, there's sort of two main flavours of neuro-ophthalmology. There's neuro-ophthalmology by a neurologist like myself, or there's neuro-ophthalmology by an ophthalmologist. We have uh, different strengths and weaknesses, so it's a bit of a team job, Um, but they're probably slightly different definitions of what it involves. I mean, broadly, I see it as sort of, uh, from a a neurology perspective, visual neurology, all of the electrical parts, you know, from the occipital uh, lobe forward to the pupil, the moving parts. 
Um, and the sorts of problems that we see, we see funny pupils, we see visual disturbance that the ophthalmologists can't explain, we see funny eye movements, and then we see different visual field disturbances that the ophthalmologists can't take account of. You, uh, once you sort of move into the chiasm and the retrochiasm, you get your homonymous uh, defects. So we sort of see and investigate those. And then uh, we, you know, you hit V1, the sort of main visual cortex, and then you sort of got your higher visual cortices, the movement areas, the colour. There's actually seems quite a bit to it. Most of our brain is is visual. So uh, in terms of conditions, you see sort of things in your inflammatory conditions, particularly multiple sclerosis, when it starts in the uh, visual system with optic neuritis or an eye movement disorder. Uh, things like myasthenia gravis, is uh, we get quite a bit of that in clinic. Uh, we deal with pressure problems and papilledema, so idiopathic intracranial hypertension. Uh, and lots of funny things in between all those. It sounds like a pretty broad spectrum of things. And today we're going to focus in on one condition in particular, which is optic neuropathy, which is one of the things you already mentioned well within your remit. So it's going to be really interesting to dig into that a little bit deeper with someone who is an esteemed expert on the subject. And not only that, but later on in the show, Luke Bonetto is going to be the next guinea pig on Quiz the Consultant. This is the quiz where our bosses take on a number of questions on a specialist subject of their own choosing with the caveat that it can't be anything to do with medicine. So what have you named as your specialist subject and why? Well, I think it was uh, British and Irish Lions Rugby, although I think I'm answering questions on England rugby. But uh, why, did I, why did I name it? I think this question, uh, Sam, is almost designed to precipitate a midlife crisis <laughs> uh, where you, uh, you, <laughs> you realise, aside from your family and your, uh, your career, that uh, you're perhaps not the most interesting bloke around, but you've watched a bit of rugby in the past. So, uh, so I guess that's the answer. Well, I, I still think it's a perfectly reasonable subject to be quizzed on. Luke Bonetto is going to be answering questions on that a little bit later in the show. But first, let's take a squinted look into this common pacer topic of optic neuropathy. So just to start off, um, Luke, there's a few phrases that listeners might encounter during their paces revision, which I just wanted to clear up. So what's the difference between an optic neuropathy and something like an optic atrophy? So optic neuropathy means the optic nerve is not working. And optic atrophy means the optic nerve is permanently damaged. So you might get an optic neuropathy where it's purely a conduction block and you will not develop optic atrophy, but the optic nerve isn't working, such as some of the milder uh, optic neuritis. Um, and then you might have some, an, an optic atrophy, which will, by definition, also be an optic neuropathy, uh, but the damage is done, and you have irrecoverable damage at that stage. And generally, optic atrophy, we mean that we look at the, their optic disc, um, and because the retinal nerve fibre layer, which is the optic nerve, is no longer there. You see straight through to the lamina cribrosa, so it looks very pale. Perfect. And so the likely lead-in for a station where a patient may be suffering from an optic neuropathy would often be something like this patient has noted a change or deterioration in their vision or possibly noticed that they've started to develop blurred vision. 
I guess the, the way we should start off, um, Luke, is how would you tend to approach um, taking a history of presenting complaint from these patients when they come to you with symptoms suggestive of an optic neuropathy? Well, I, I, you know, it's always good to get a time course, but I'm always particularly interested to work out where the problem is as soon as possible. As a neuro-ophthalmologist, you could find this is not your not in your ballpark and get it straight back to the ophthalmologist without getting your hands too dirty. Um, so you want to know, is this in one eye or both eyes? And if it's in one eye, what pattern is it taking? And if it's in both eyes, roughly what pattern it is, whether it's over a homonymous uh, defect, is there a pattern that's likely to be uh, neurological here you really want to understand what they what they mean by deterioration in vision or blurred vision is so broad and people's understanding of these words patients understanding of these words I often used to think how can they keep on getting it wrong um, but the problem is with lots of these and it's common throughout neurology all of these experiences are very very difficult to share with another person and so the language is necessarily messy. And so you have to be sure that your understanding of blurred vision, and by blurred vision, I would normally sort of mean like looking through frosted glass or something like that, is the same as their understanding. Because double vision, blurred vision, patients seem to change these things. And so what I understand by double vision, they might call blurred vision and vice versa. So that's sort of, those are the sorts of things I want to sort of start out by uh, exploring, particularly if it's double vision um, and it's only in one eye, um, then then from a neurology perspective, you're really done and dusted. There are no neurological causes of double vision in one eye, the cerebral polyopia, which is incredibly rare, but essentially uh, you're done and dusted at that stage. So that's the sort of thing that I would you know, look to get an early handle on. And then once I've established it's in my area, then the questions that we are asked in terms of the nature and what they're feeling at that time uh, are useful for localizing the neurological problem. But in terms of working out what the pathology is, the critical issue is the timing. If this has been going on for 10 years, you know, then you're into sort of some of the sort of rarer or more dominant optic atrophies might do that. If it's been going on for a few weeks, you might be looking at more of a malignant phenomenon. And if a few days you're in the uh, inflammatory uh, territory, and if it's just like that, then you're in the, the, the vascular territory. Perfect. And I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned there, which was when you say something has a neurological pattern, and you mentioned it, it about one eye being affected or um, both eyes. Just Can you expand a bit on what you mean when something has a neurological pattern so that listeners can appreciate when, when they might associate something more with a neurological problem as opposed to an, an ophthalmic problem. Okay. Well, well, obviously, this, you know, this, this is all part of a spectrum. Um, but particularly, you know, we're interested in homonymous uh, defects or bitemporal defects if we're talking about visual field loss, because that places, you know, if you have a, a, a homonymous uh, upper, uh, so a left upper quadrantanopia, and then we know that we're in the right temporal lobe or occipital lobe, or even in the uh, uh, even in the um, lateral geniculate nucleus. You know, so that's sort of a very obvious thing. You know, it is very rare that you're going to get a uh, an ophthalmic disease, a retinal disease, or something like that that just happens to land in those patterns. And and one of the things we're really interested in is the 
the vertical meridian. So the line that sort of goes straight up through your vision. If you have a field defect that respects the vertical meridian, um, then you're you're very much you know in the neurological territory. You're you're at the chiasm or behind. Obviously, you're bang on the chiasm. You're probably bitemporal, and then as soon as you go back into the tract, you're looking at different uh, sizes, varying shades of uh, homonymous uh, field defects, and they're usually much more disabling because. The patient just can't see anything in that area. Whereas the reason you've got two eyes is you can actually lose quite, have a large scotoma monocularly, and you may not notice it until you get something in your, your other eye for quite a while. And even with both eyes open, you'd still be, you know, so if most people who lose one eye um, are still able to drive, they still have a driving feel with one healthy eye, but you lose even a small part, you get even a small homonymous defect you know, and drivings, uh, you're not allowed to drive by the DVLA. You've already mentioned about the the timing of onset of symptoms. And how interested are you or how important is it to ask about the um, variability of symptoms in terms of whether or not what they're experiencing is intermittent or has remained relatively constant over the time that they've had whatever they're reporting? Uh, well, it's very important. So absolutely right. I mean, you may get a person who's come to you and they don't actually have a problem with the vision at the time they're seeing you, but they had a sort of a, a curtain come down over their vision. It's amaurosis fugax, and you're 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 worried about um, preventing them having a stroke. Uh, episodic visual loss is also very important with the ischemic optic neuropathies, particularly. So if you have the you know what we worry about with giant cell because it's a blinding condition commonest reason the giant cell arteritis blinds people is because of arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy and they quite commonly have transient visual obscuration prior to losing their vision completely Um, whereas a non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy which is much commoner uh, will tend not to have that transient visual loss beforehand Uh, People with idiopathic intracranial hypertension or intracranial hypertension for any cause will often have transient visual obscuration, particularly if they cough, sneeze, bend forward, stand up quickly, that type of thing. Uh, So you're absolutely right. It's not just when did it start and what the sort of slope of progression is. It's is it it an intermittent phenomenon or is it a a constant phenomenon? And you just mentioned there a couple of sort of specific circumstances related to a specific condition with the bending and coughing related to intracranial hypertension. Are there Mm. any other sort of very typical or almost stereotypical circumstances for um, some conditions where patients very typically report symptoms during a set of particular circumstances? Well, I mean, the the classic would be migraine. I suspect many of your uh, listeners will have suffered it. But if, if ever I hear the word 20 minutes in a uh, neurological history, uh, the answer is migraine. Um, (laughs) Probably not medically legally defensible. um, So don't sort of quote that uh, in court or anything. But, but, you know, as soon as you hear 20, you know, visual disturbance, oh, how 20 minutes, 20 minutes. I mean, this is just about the, you know, so migraine depolarizing waves all go about the same speed and the people's occipital cortex are all about the same size. And so it seems to take about 20 minutes for a uh, migraine visual aura to uh, to sort of propagate across the occipital cortex, then disappears out of the occipital cortex and the visual disturbance goes and you get your headache. 
Um, but that's the that's the other sort of classic uh, timing uh, situation, I think. This may be something which, or at least something I remember from my revision as well, was particularly with something like multiple sclerosis, was the phenomenon of getting symptoms in hot environments. So typically sort of getting blurred vision when they come out of a shower or during exercise. Is, is that something you still see relatively often? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I, I guess we've often got to the diagnosis by that time and then we're sort of just confirming in our minds. So uh, uh, Utoff's phenomenon, if you, with, with the repairs people make with multiple sclerosis, most of the repairs will be very good, but they don't work so well under slightly higher temperatures. So it's important often just to warn the patient if you're suspecting that type of problem, not to panic if they go for a run and their symptoms get a bit worse. It will get better when they rest or if they're in a hot bath. They aren't doing permanent damage, but the repairs that they have made will work less well. Don't have a, they just don't have that range of temperature uh, that they can cope with. When you see your patients in clinic, what sort of things have they tried already to sort of remedy the situation or what can they do that's within their control or what have they tried before coming to see you often to try and fix the problem? Well, they've usually, uh, uh, and I'm always pleased that they have, has been to the opticians to check that a pair of glasses uh, doesn't do the trick because obviously we do sometimes get patients who have blurred vision and somehow manage to end up in a neuro-ophthalmology clinic um, and you just put a pinhole up and they say, oh, it's better now. You know, so, uh, so like, okay, all right, well, you know, so it's best that they go to the opticians first. Those are the usual things that they've uh, that, that they've tried. Okay, and I guess just another part of the history, which is probably important for paces and just demonstrating that the listeners are being comprehensive in their assessment, would just be asking about any eye problems in the past, whether or not the patients are myopic or hypropic, and whether or not they wear glasses, which may or may not be relevant to what they've come in with. But just honing in on optic neuropathy itself, what are the key symptoms which our listeners should ask in a scenario where they suspect this is the diagnosis of the patient? So, well, an optic neuropathy can give you any field defect, and there are different types of optic neuropathy uh, that cause different symptoms. So it's not quite as straightforward as a catch-all fraud. So obviously the, the commonest type of optic neuropathy is glaucoma. That isn't really considered a neuro-ophthalmological condition. That's very much considered an ophthalmological condition. And in, in glaucoma, they probably won't have any symptoms. Um, this is sort of picked up by screening and they'll have a, uh, might have an arcuate field defect that they haven't noted. Their visual acuity will generally be normal and their color vision will be normal. So, so just to sort of say it's not a one size fits all. However, in the type of optic neuropathies, the sort of acute optic neuropathies uh, that uh, we're concerned with, obviously it's the type of visual loss. So a lot of optic neuropathies will tend to affect the central vision first. So they get a reduction in visual acuity. A lot of optic neuropathies preferentially affect color vision. So is color vision uh, down even if the visual acuity uh, is uh, normal. Um, is there pain? Um, so pain is useful in trying to sort of sift through the different types of uh, optic neuropathy. Um, but I guess you're still at the sort of stage where, yes, you, you know, you're desperate to get on and uh, do some part of the examination that tells you that this is definitely optic nerve as opposed to retina or any other part of the or, or, or cataract or those types of things. 
and I guess just going back to one of the things you said near the start was actually clarifying, is this a blurred vision or is it a loss of visual field or is it double vision? And I guess just emphasizing that to the listeners, just so that like, like yeah, you said, the language which is used between patients and doctors can vary a lot and clarifying that would just be um, of, of paramount importance in exactly determining what the patient is is presenting with and, and can change your diagnostic process. Yeah, and, and you know, some I have had patients who got through to clinic with double vision. And uh, then when you narrow it down, what happens is if they look at something close to them, then everything in the distance is double. And if they look at something in the distance, then everything close to them is double, which of course is exactly what we all experience. Um, but we, we, we rarely, we don't worry about it. But some patients, it's that simple. It's just they're noticing normal visual phenomenon. They've brought out the word double vision and then they've been refer, 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 what's the cause? And then it's, it's actually, they're just noticing physiological double vision. If we are considering the different categories with which we can group the, the types of conditions which can cause an optic neuropathy. Um, you've already mentioned about sort of um, ischemic and arteritic and non-arteritic. So would you say that that's one of the most common causes that listeners ought to consider near the top of their differential diagnosis list? Yeah, I, I think, you know, so in terms of the sort of the acute and subacute, then I guess the commonest are ischemic and inflammatory. Um, with dividing up causes of optic neuritis, no, you know, two experts absolutely agree that it's been done the best way. Um, but basically, you know, if you've got an older person, it's more likely to be ischemic, younger person more likely to be inflammatory. If pain is very important, so 90% of people with optic neuritis, inflammation of the optic nerve, will have pain, particularly worse on usually worse on eye movements, whereas only 10% of people who have non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy, the commonest type, uh, will have pain, and then it doesn't tend to get worse with, with eye movement. So yeah, those are the sorts of things that we can use to try and divide them up. Obviously, the critical thing is how quickly it's come on. So with an optic neuritis, often you get the pain precedes it. So you might get somebody, you know, so typical optic neuritis story, 25-year-old young lady, um, she's got some slight discomfort in the eye, worse when she moves her eye. A couple of days later, she starts getting blurring centrally and it's blurred vision centrally uh, within that eye and she won't be able to see so far down the letters. She might be 636 or so. Uh, she notices that colours, if she looks at red, uh, with the good eye, then it's a nice bright red. If she looks at red with the other eye, then it's sort of like a washed out burgundy uh, colour. So that's a sort of typical, you know, onset. And then the, the key with optic neuritis, we're really trying to sort of divide it down, is this uh, typical or atypical um, and previously typical optic neuritis was called MS-associated optic neuritis. But then only half of patients with MS-associated optic neuritis got MS. They said, oh, we'll call it uh, typical. Um, or is it atypical? And you really can't tell when you first see the patient because it, a lot of it's on, does it get better? So 95% of cases of typical optic neuritis will begin to recover within five weeks. Um, so you really need to have seen someone at that stage before you can 
really say this is a this is a typical optic neuritis and all I'm really worried about is how I'm going to break the news to her that she might have multiple sclerosis and actually I'm not that worried about the vision because the vision's going to get better whether I give steroids or not compared with the atypical optic neuritis where I'm not worried about whether she's got multiple sclerosis she probably most certainly hasn't uh, what I'm worried about is she might go blind okay so those are the two things that we're trying to sort of, you know, the, 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 and then the, uh, the atypicals can be divided up into neuromyelitis optica, um, uh, and many of those will be associated with aquaporin-4 and MOG antibodies. Um, and then in the ones that won't, you have to worry about some rarer things like sarcoidosis, these steroid-dependent conditions. Um, I'm sorry, was that, um, how far away from the question am I now? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. So you mentioned about young patients typically presenting with something like an optic neuritis of an inflammatory cause. If, say, the patient in the station is elderly, potentially with cardio- cardiovascular risk factors, or just elderly and, and possibly has um, other sort of autoimmune inflammatory conditions, there are, there are other differential diagnoses which would fit within the ischemic category as, as causes of optic neuropathy. So do you just want to sort of cover, cover those for us and how you would... Okay. Yeah, certainly. So the elderly patient uh, with vascular risk factors. Um, so the in terms of the ischemic optic neuropathy, so it's the it's the anterior portion of the disc, the visible part of uh, the optic disc that you can see uh, that uh, its blood supply seems to be particularly uh, tenuous. Um, you have the back, you have the short posterior ciliary arteries, and then this structure called the circle of Zinhaller. Um, and that is very susceptible uh, both to arteritic, which is mainly giant cell arteritis, um, and non-arteritic. So non-arteritic is actually much more common. And this is just a sort of um, microvascular ischemic uh, damage. So uh, typically, as you say, somebody with vascular risk factors. Um, it tends to be people who have very small optic cups, um, and these people tend to be long-sighted. Um, and I, I don't know exactly why it is, I guess the angles uh, and branching off the uh, circle of Zinhaller are probably tighter in those patients. So they're, they're more at risk of developing a non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. So what you would generally, you know, the story would generally be of often of waking up and they might take their blood pressure pills at night and low blood pressure and then wake in the morning and uh, they've got blurring of vision. Um, and because of the anatomy of the circle of Zenhala, this often gives an altitudinal field defect. So it's actually, they get infarction of either the superior or inferior portion of the disc. And then that gives a corresponding field defect. Obviously, if it's the inferior disc, you'll get a superior altitudinal field defect. And so you don't really get that anywhere else. You know, it would be even with glaucoma, I think it'd be very bizarre to get that that type of pattern. So that's the uh, that's a symptom uh, that they might wake up as a blurred vision. And then if you test the field, you'll see it's altitudinal. And then if you look at the disc, you'll see you've actually got swelling of just either the superior or inferior uh, border uh, of the disc. Um, And then visual acuity um, might be quite good because just below fixation, uh, they might have a normal 
uh, normal visual function. But unfortunately, the acronyms are very long. So that's N-A-A-I-O-N, non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Um, in those cases, always have a look at the other eye um, because the discs will likely be fairly symmetric. So if in the other eye, they've got a normal disc with a nice cup, then it's very unlikely to be non-arteritic anterior ischemic optic neuropathy. Got to worry about other conditions. In the case of an arteritic, or usually due to giant cell, then often being asked about these cases, because we're worried these patients are going to go completely blind. Once one eye is affected, you can't save it. You're just trying to save the sight in the other eye. So these are the ones with the systemic features, the headache, the jaw claudication, fever, weight loss, night sweats. Their temporal arteries, obviously, it's the condition of giant cell affects all the extracranial arteries. Um, uh, but we always talk about temporal arteritis just because it's the, it's the one, it seems to be, the, curiously, the one artery that you can just chop out and look out down a microscope without causing a huge amount of, uh, you know, we don't say, or oh, just biopsy their coronary artery for a second. <laughs> Little, see what their left anterior descending looks like. Um, whereas with the temporal arteries, you seem to be able to sort of take them, and that's your chance of getting a, a diagnosis. Um, and the, you know, the key thing, though, is getting the steroids started early, because if they go blind while they're waiting for biopsy, you won't get it back. So those are the two, you know, in terms of an ischemic and, and with a with a uh, an arteritic, the giant cell version, you often get this really curious, pale but swollen disc at the same time. So it's almost white, but you can see it's it's swollen out towards you. Um, so which is which is almost you, know, you don't really see with anything else. Although giant cell arteritis is probably the most well-known for this, is this something you could get from another pre-existing autoimmune condition such as SLE or Bechet's or polyarteritis nodosa? Yeah, you, you could do. So, I mean, often we talk about 50, uh, you know, above the age of 50, you're suddenly in the running for giant cell. Below the age of 50, you aren't. And I think that's, you know, that that's... I think that's so uh, reliable. Obviously, you know, you might find cases, the occasional case, 47 or something like that, but they're so infrequent that you're probably going to do more harm with banging steroids around in a 45-year-old than you are going to help with the vision. But you're right, there are other potential vasculitides which may occur in younger patients, but we see them very, very rarely. Um, so, you know, if you've got a patient under the age of 50, um, then you can usually be quite relaxed. That They're very unlikely to have a vasculitis that's going to cause them to suddenly go blind. Perfect. And then just some other um, possible etiologies of patients with an optic neuropathy. How frequently do you end up diagnosing malignancy or tumours of um, these patients who present with an optic neuropathy? Uh, so... V- we very rarely diagnose um, high-grade tumours. So there's this, you know, the situation of optic gliomas, and you sort of think of a glioma in the brain and glioblastoma, and these horrible, rapidly progressive conditions. Whereas, sort of tumours on an optic nerve usually present very slowly. So if I've got somebody who's got a bit of an optic neuropathy and the scan's all right, and then it's a bit worse the next year, you know, then those are the patients I want to be very clear. I've given them gadolinium on the scan um, because that sort of, you know, sort of thing that will present as an optic nerve sheath meningioma 
uh, or even an optic nerve uh, glioma. Uh, so those are the sorts of, you know, they tend not to present in that really, really quick way. Then you sometimes get people who've got uh, lymphoma or leukemia who may get leukemic or lymphomatous uh, in, invasion of the nerve. Um, and uh, that's usually, I, I've not seen a case of that where that's been the presentation of their tumour. Um, so it's mainly around those sort of slow-growing uh, optic nerve gliomas and optic nerve sheath meningiomas. And the catch-out is the one that will go quickly is the optic nerve sheath meningioma in the pregnant patient um, because these are hormone-sensitive. And so if you've got a, you know, somebody who becomes pregnant and then suddenly you know, over a few days or weeks loses vision in one eye, um, then often it's a meningioma that just expands massively during pregnancy. And in terms of other sort of compressive causes or causes due to high intracranial pressure, do you think it's worth the listeners asking about the typical symptoms of high intracranial pressure when assessing these patients? And if you've got something like a station five, where they're very pushed for time, what are sort of the key symptoms which you would want our listeners to ask about to make sure they've sort of signposted to the examiner that they're asking about or they're considering a compressive cause? So, uh, so just quickly before I deal with raised intracranial pressure, go back to the sort of compressive causes. Don't forget about pituitary tumours. So I see I had quite a few referrals for optic neuritis that have turned out to be pituitary macroadenomas pressing on the... So obviously we think of them pressing on the chiasm and causing a bitemporal defect, um, but they only need to roll forward a little bit and they're on both optic nerves and they'll cause a bilateral optic neuropathy or an asymmetrical optic neuropathy. So don't forget about pituitary tumors. In terms of high pressure, what everyone's favorite is the uh, headache that's worse in the morning because they've been lying down and the pressure's higher. Pulsatile tinnitus, uh, pulsing in time with their heartbeat. <sighs> and uh, transient visual obscuration, uh, and then potentially false localizing signs of which uh, sixth is the commonest. So they might complain of double vision and have a sixth, less commonly seventh and one very virtually never eighths, but it can happen. Just finishing off with the last couple of possible etiologies for an optic neuropathy. I know you mentioned very briefly earlier in sort of infiltrative causes such as sarcoid. And yep. we would probably say that those would be unlikely unless possibly unless other elements of the history are suggestive. And then nutritional. I mean, this must be sort of extremely rare, but I, I think there have been sort of reported cases of you know, children with terrible diets who have ended up going blind because you know, they've basically been eating rubbish their entire childhood. But I guess those are just things which, uh, as a matter for completeness, just to make sure you're mentioning those yes. sorts of things in, in, in investigations. So, so those guys will tend to um, have a slowly progressive course and everything will be very symmetrical. Um, so one optic nerve will be affected as much as the other. So that's the nutritional and the um, toxic uh, causes sort of alcohol, uh, sorry, mainly tobacco. And so they can be more difficult to pick up and they've often got a very tight central scotoma. So their vision might be down on the chart, but the visual field might look, actually look quite good because they've got quite good peripheral vision. 
um, you won't get a relative afferent pupillary defect, uh, which I don't know if we talked about, is obviously very important in terms of the, you know, the, the cardinal sign that we can see that will tell us it's in the optic nerve as a relative afferent pupillary defect. But you don't get it if you've got a symmetrical condition and nutritional and toxic are almost always symmetrical. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You do sometimes see very bizarre diets that will cause neurological damage. Um, obviously B12, folate, uh, A and E can, vitamin A and E can uh, do damage your optic nerves uh, as well. And we recently had somebody who had a upbeat nystagmus due to a thiamine deficiency because he decided he was going to go on a crash diet and just drink Actamel. Actamel, and he said, well, it's, you know, it looks like it's got all the, all the vitamins in it because it says, you know, vitamins, dum, 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 but it didn't have vitamin B1. So you do still, you know, even, even in uh, our, our land of plenty. And obviously, actually, in some ways, we're more susceptible to things like a nutritional optic neuropathy um, because you so the concentration camp survivors did not have any nutritional optic neuropathy, whereas in Cuba, uh, they had an epidemic of nutritional optic neuropathy because all they had was sugar. Um, so their breakfast would be a sort of a couple of spoonfuls of sugar in a rolled up in some water. Um, and because they had the carbohydrate, uh, they actually had the sort of the fuel to, to cause the damage uh, without the essential vitamins to, uh, to, to keep the optic nerve going. So if you just, if you just lose all your nutrition, then you'll, um, you, you shouldn't damage your optic nerves. You might become very thin. But if you, if you take carbohydrate, but, you know, like these beige diets that some of the kids have, uh, then you're susceptible to a wider range of uh, neurological conditions. Yeah, and I just wanted to touch on one um, specific condition, which is Leber's optic atrophy, which is probably slightly too rare to come up in paces. But it, I mean, anything is possible. You know, they can they can bring out anything on the day. So I just wanted to ask, sort of, what would be the typical history for a patient with um, Leber's optic atrophy, and and what would you be most likely to find um, on examination of these patients? So uh, can get it in both sexes, but more common in men can happen at any age. And it would be painless visual loss, usually over a few days. Um, uh, 50% of cases are bilateral. Um, and then in the other 50% of cases, there'll be sequential. Uh, almost always both eyes go within 12 months of each other. So they, they can be tricky. And I've certainly seen a few that have been referred to me as functional because they've got very um, significant loss of central vision, but preserved field. So people always make the comment that, oh, they couldn't see anything on the chart, but they, they didn't bump into anything. And they don't bump into anything. So they've got good peripheral vision. So those are the, those are the cases. Acutely, you do sometimes see mild disc swelling and some extra vessels on the disc. Uh, as uh, in the acute stages of a Leber's hereditary uh, optic neuropathy. The other interesting thing about them is that the um, melanopsin cells in their retina are relatively preserved, and that, preser that largely preserves their pupillary reflex. And so their pupil reflexes are usually you know, uh, much more normal than you would expect for the degree of visual loss that they're getting. And it may hide a relative afferent pupillary defect, again, giving rise to that suspicion of this being functional. Perfect. So moving on from the history, and we've gone through a number of specific causes there, along with the sorts of questions you should ask for each cause. 
After the history, you'll be expected to examine these patients. Now, I know many medical trainees find the approach to eye examination very tricky, but not least in places where you've literally got a matter of minutes to um, identify the, the pertinent signs. So what do you think of the absolute essentials um, to examine in a patient presenting with symptoms suggestive of an optic neuropathy? Uh, I, I don't envy your paces candidates. I should say I, I managed to avoid paces by uh, I got my MRCP on the last round of the, the previous format. So, uh, so I don't fancy minutes to try and do this. But uh, <laughs> just in terms of covering the absolute essentials to demonstrate that you've got a good knowledge of this condition. Okay. So I guess, you know, if we divide it up into the afferent and the efferent system, the afferent system, the information going into their brain, uh, then the things that I want to look at is I want to measure their visual acuity, uh, their central visual acuity. If you're allowed to do that in the examiners, it's usually a Snellen chart, but you can be creative, uh, uh, you know, in terms of can you see this or, or uh, uh, read the time on my clock or something like that. Um, uh, uh, that's obviously important to assess the central visual function, which is usually down in an optic neuropathy. Um, the quick test of colour vision would just be if you've got an item of red and just get them to look at it with each eye in turn and say, is it the same red? And then if they say, oh, no, no, actually, it's bright red in that one, it's a dark red in this one, that's very suggestive of most optic uh, neuropathies. And um, then you'll want to have a look at the visual field. And I usually do this in finger counting in the four quadrants. So their eye versus my eye left versus right versus left, left versus right. Um, and I do either one finger or two finger, no thumbs, because that's if you put a thumb and two fingers, is that three fingers or is that two fingers? You can only really pick out really big homonymous defects with uh, visual fields to confrontation, which is why we have machines that the patients spend, you know, five minutes an eye on. We don't have, we haven't even, didn't invent those because we were really good at doing visual fields to confrontation. So you're just picking out something really obvious with that. Uh, then, then probably would move on to the pupils. So obviously, first of all, you've got to be uh, confident that you've not got any uh, efferent defect, like a third nerve pulse. You can still do a relative afferent pupillary defect in those cases. Um, but the relative afferent pupillary defect is the, you know, really, really good objective test for an optic neuropathy. Um, it's good because it's very specific for optic nerve damage. So you could have a retinal problem that caused uh, a relative afferent pupillary defect, but it should be, you know, a really big, obvious, you know, like toxoplasma or something really awful at the back of the eye to cause that with a retinopathy. So that's why it's useful. And people get confused about relative afferent pupillary defect. Just think of it as a competition between the optic nerves. You know, right, I'm going to see which optic nerve can pick up this light better. And the way that I'm going to do it is seeing which one causes the pupils to constrict the most, okay? Because the, pu the way you're wired up in your brainstem is the pupils have no idea which eye the light's gone in. There's no way that you could tell when you get to the pupil level. So that's why they constrict the same, whether you put it in the right or the left. You basically shine the light in one eye and then go across to the other eye. You do not need to avoid the nose. There's a sort of popular uh, belief that the nose is photosensitive and that you need to swing the torch down underneath the nose. But that just delays the time for your torch getting across. So it gives time for the other optic, uh, other pupil to dilate. And then you might miss the relative average. So one eye 
and then swing it a shortest distance across to the other eye. Make sure they don't fix on the light because that will cause the pupil to constrict with a near response. And then try to, I try to count as I do it. So I only give each slot eye the same amount of light. So usually as you count to three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And that's because sometimes you will tend to concentrate on the eye of interest and you can bleach the photoreceptors in that eye and you can create a relative afferent pupillary defect. So it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you get two goes at the relative afferent pupillary defect. If you obviously move from the good eye to the bad or the bad optic nerve, you, what you're looking for is to see as you shine the light in that pupil, the pupil dilates a little bit. But you've also got another go. It's when you swing it back to the good eye, if that one constricts a bit. So every time you swing, you're looking for information, not just when you go into the eye of interest. And sometimes it's a sort of, you know, the subtle ones, you know, you keep on doing it. <laughs> you know, it's like a sort of a test where you can keep on running the test and you get more and more suspicion uh, with, with the number of swings. But obviously, if you've only got two minutes or so, you're probably only going to do two or three swings. Yeah. And just going back very quickly to the visual acuity side of things, usually in those stations, they will have um, some of the three meter Snellen charts. I know it can be difficult, like we've said, to fit in that much in, in such a short time frame, but some examiners will expect you to perform the visual acuity assessment using the three meter chart. So I think, I think, I think it's really good too, if you can, because it's just, you know, that they're all worried about being rung at, two in the morning and say what's the visual acuity saying oh well they could sort of read the sun uh, front page you know it, it just doesn't come across so well as a sort of a six over five or whatever the thing I would say is don't let them read from the top uh, just say what's the lowest line you can see on this chart well okay they usually say what's the lowest line you can read clearly and they will then tell you the line that they can't read uh, or try to, you know, but uh, but if you start, you know, sort of aid and, and um, you'll waste time. Again, this is something which is specific to paces, but performing fundoscopy is probably something which most candidates and most listeners listening to this would probably dread. And in my personal experience and from what I have heard from the majority of my colleagues, often if you reach for the fundoscope, the examiners will wave you down so to speak and say oh you know you don't need to but I have also more recently heard the opposite where they do expect you to perform it so what sort of findings would you expect to see on performing fundoscopy on these patients? So optic neuropathy uh, three possibilities you'll get a normal looking optic nerve head and that means that if they've got an optic neuropathy the problem's further back in the nerve, not the visible portion. So this would be a retrobulbar optic neuritis. So they say, you know, the patient sees nothing, doctor sees nothing. Uh, obviously give it time and then that will become pale. So it's basically it could be normal, it could be swollen, which means the optic nerve is damaged at or around the optic nerve head, or it could be pale, which means it's been irrecoverably damaged at some point in the past. One thing which probably take too much time in paces, but you should definitely mention that you would do if given more time. And like you said, men mentioned about testing with a red piece of clothing or something red, which is um, in the room. If you don't have that available, always mention using the Ishihara plates, which I, I guess is the most formal way of, of, of testing colour perception between, um, between affected eyes. 
Well, there's the Mantle 100 Hue test, but you'd be forgiven for not squeezing that in in a couple of minutes. The Ishihara plates are really designed to distinguish between uh, red, green and blue, yellow, um, congenital colour blindness. But we can just count, you know, you can just get them to sort of count the number of, uh, number of different plates that they can see. And welcome back. And we've been discussing with Dr. Luke Bonetto, consultant neuro-ophthalmologist about optic neuropathy. Now, before the break, we talked through the characteristic findings or things you should ask about in a history. And we talked about the various categories which you should be thinking about categorizing your patient's presented complaint into. So the differential diagnoses, as we've already mentioned, have been ischemic, whether that's arteritic or non-arteritic, remembering, of course, that these patients are often older than the other set of patients, which are probably most key to consider in a differential diagnosis, that being of optic neuritis, where you'd expect a younger patient, um, possibly female, with um, possible elements related to um, hot environments where the symptoms may be getting worse, suggestive of Uthoff's phenomenon as well as asking about compressive symptoms possibly related to raised intracranial pressure. So the really important things to mention in your presentation would be to support your suspected diagnosis with potential risk factors or features typical of that presentation. Like we already mentioned before, it would pretty much be impossible for you to complete a full and comprehensive eye examination in eight minutes. So the first thing to think of when you present is mention any tests that you wouldn't have got the chance to do during the focused station five. Other things to include, which we've already mentioned, include the Ishihara plates, examination using a slit lamp with dilating drops, which obviously won't be available in paces, and um, a complete and full systematic neurological examination um, if the patient has additional symptoms. The next question after you've presented back to the examiner is likely to be, how would you manage this patient if they were to present to you either in clinic or on the medical take? So Luke, how, how would you go about the approach to investigating these patients when they, when they first come to you in clinic? So uh, obviously it depends on the, uh, what, what cause you suspect, but if you're, you know, say you're, you're primary, you know, suspicious, this was uh, an optic uh, neuritis. Um, and then if it's a typical optic neuritis, you is, you know, unilateral, not too bad, pain on eye movement, young lady, then the question is really, you're not worried about their long-term visual prognosis, which should be good. You could give steroids to speed up recovery, but it won't make any difference to their long-term outcome. So most of the time, we will probably uh, avoid steroids in this group. We would obviously want to make sure that we followed them up, uh, you know, about five weeks after onset to check that they were improving and safety noted them to say, look, if it gets worse. So particularly, you know, they shouldn't have no perception of light if it's typical. So if they progress to that, they need to sort of come back. And then the, the discussion would be around the history would be searching out for uh, uh, previous episodes of potential demyelination. Um, and then the investigations would be around risk stratifying them for multiple sclerosis and checking them out, well, vitamin D deficient, because uh, they may do a bit better with vitamin D 
supplementation in terms of their long-term outcome. That's the sort of the uh, plan. So it's that difficult discussion around multiple sclerosis, which obviously uh, lots of people are afraid of. You know, I do just tell them that multiple sclerosis is commoner and milder than it used to be because we've got better treatments. And so we don't want to mistreating anybody. So we made it easier to get a diagnosis. So just because you've got a diagnosis or might get one is not a sort of cause to um, imagine that you're going to be in a wheelchair in short order or anything. We talk about the natural history of multiple sclerosis. It depends on the sort of, you know, if you move into the atypical um, optic neuritis, then often you've got a situation where, you know, particularly if both optic nerves are affected, you're worried about their sight. And so you've got to cast the net wider in terms of tests. You're going to want to check their aquaporin 4 and their MOG antibodies. Um, you're going to want to be imaging their optic nerves. So in the first case with the typical case, you'll want to image the optic nerves, but you're really a bit more interested in the brain to risk stratify them for MS. But in the atypical cases, you're obviously uh, looking for signal change in the optic nerve. The longer the signal change, the more likely you are to be dealing with a, an atypical optic neuritis condition, such as neuromyelitis optica, so if it involves more than a third of the optic nerve. Um, so it's important when you do the scan, the MRI, that you uh, usually when you request orbit, orbital MRI, you'll usually get a T2 fat-saturated scan, uh, which is important because there's a lot of fat in the orbit. And so if you don't uh, uh, use fat saturation views, it's much more difficult to pick out the uh, optic nerve. Gadolinium can be helpful, um, but often our neuroradiology colleagues take a sort of you know, key active role in uh, rationing gadolinium. You can always go back and use it at a later date if your first request is, is denied. So those, those are the sorts of broad things in terms of the optic neuritis. And then actually most sort of rapidly progressive optic neuropathies where we don't know what's going on, we'll give a trial of steroids to see whether something's steroid sensitive. And you get two types, you get things that are steroid sensitive and things that are steroid dependent. So all of the optic neuritises will usually be steroid sensitive unless they're so severe that they don't respond. And then you've got to go on and consider plasma exchange. Uh, to be sure you're not getting a response. And then some of the, and then the, the rare, the atypical optic neuritis are often steroid dependent. Uh, you know, typical optic neuritis, you give them a course of steroids, gets better and it sort of stays better. The atypical cases, you give them a case of steroids, they get better, take them off the steroids, it gets worse again. Put them on steroids, it gets better again. So those are the steroid dependent cases where you try and manage them on a low dose of steroids, but you may need steroid sparing agents. One of the key reasons that you need to differentiate this group are that some of the treatments for multiple sclerosis might make uh, atypical uh, optic neuritis worse. Some of the multiple sclerosis treatments will, will actually worsen the prognosis if you've got the diagnosis wrong. So you have to be um, careful and confident. Um, you know, and mistakes have been made and they will be made, but you've got to be uh, do everything you can to uh, reduce that risk. A lumbar puncture can be helpful in differentiating. So we do a lumbar puncture often in, often in uh, typical optic neuritis to try and help understand what their risk of multiple sclerosis is. The, actually, MRI has slightly made the lumbar puncture less helpful in those cases because the MRI would sort of trump you know, in terms of risk 
risk stratification. Uh, you know, if you've got some of the typical optic neuritis, their risk of developing multiple sclerosis within 15 years is about 50%. Um, but if they've got brain lesions, then it goes up to 75%. In any brain lesions, it goes down to about 25%. If their CSF is clear of oligoclonal bands, then it goes, you know, goes down to about 5 or 10% or so. But you've got to remember 5% of the normal population will have oligoclonal bands, about that will have oligoclonal bands. 95% of cases with MS will have it as well. Um, but sometimes in MS, it's negative. The bands are negative to start with and then go positive. So I'm not, if I'm worried about MS, I, I don't rush in with a lumbar puncture, uh, you know, because the longer you leave it, the more likely you are to get a, a useful answer. In terms of looking at rarer causes, you can check a serum ACE, you know, for sarcoid. You, If you were very suspicious, you might do a CT scan of uh, chest abdomen looking for sort of more accessible uh, tissue um, if you're thinking of the compressive causes particularly the things like the uh, meningioma or pituitary then clearly that's part of the imaging the, the nutritional and the toxic I guess aren't going to present you on an acute take apart from methanol poisoning so if you ever had two people suddenly presenting with painless blindness then you know <laughs> be given a bottle of whiskey, you know, to compete with the methanol, which could be knocking their optic nerves off. So don't forget about that. Uh, I think those are, those are most of the things that I would be looking for. So it's mainly around going to be around the optic neuritis. And is this one where we're just worried about multiple sclerosis or is this one where we're worried about them going blind? If they're worried about them going blind, then give steroids. Just going back to the ischemic optic neuropathy is is there much use in screening these people for cardiovascular risk so testing their cholesterol hba1c lipid profile this this sort of thing are those investigations particularly useful to you uh, I, I think they're helpful but it, it's it's very small vessels that are involved so it's always difficult to know i think most people probably would start them on aspirin um but it's uh, the, the nature of the ischemic process is different from a, a stroke or a myocardial infarction or whatever because it's very small uh, vessels but still worthwhile it's easy to check your vascular risk factors and they're easy things to treat so just to summarize essentially an mri brain and spinal cord and possibly an mri of the orbits as well specifically looking for um, evidence of inflammation lumbar puncture as you, as you said is something which we would probably tend to do on the, a fair amount on an outpatient basis. But like I said, by the time they see you, things are probably sort of slightly more advanced and, and probably there's a greater suspicion of the diagnosis based on the imaging. Other things I'm just thinking of would be potentially if it's something related to a giant cell arteritis, checking an ESR and a CRP, I think they are sort of part of the criteria of a diagnosis of giant cell if, if there isn't an existing diagnosis. So that's Certainly something that I would consider mentioning to the to the examiner. Um, but then, like with pretty much every PACES case, you should always finish by mentioning the team or specialist whose care this patient is most likely to progress under. And, and that would be um, someone like, like yourself, Luke. So a, a referral to um, a neurology or even more specifically a neuro-ophthalmologist um, for further investigation and an ongoing specialist treatment for their optic neuropathy. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I think that pretty much covers the investigations of a patient who has an optic neuropathy. And in terms of management, I think probably your safest bet in paces would be to say, unless it's a, a clear giant cell arteritis where starting steroids as soon as possible is the safest thing to do. I guess the safest thing in anything other than that would be to say that you'd make contact with that relevant team and take their advice with whether or not to start steroids. Yeah, I, I think it, I think it would be a sort of specialist decision. But with the proviso, that if you've got somebody that sounds like they've got bilateral optic neuritis and they um, have no perception of light in either eye, you're going to need to have that conversation very, very quickly and get steroids because they may be losing axons, you know, hundreds of axons a second. And you've got about 1.2 million axons in each optic nerve. Um, so, you know, you need to get, you would need to get your skates on in some cases and have that discussion. Um, you're, you're much less likely to have an infective cause of optic neuritis. And so if you, you know, if you've scanned them and there's no great mass lesion or there or anything else like that, then, then, uh, yeah, you type time may be of the essence for steroids and the same, similar to giant cell arteritis, you know, consider it the same, uh, in terms of how quickly you're trying to get that, uh, into them. And I guess part of the referral, which you'd mentioned at the end of the presentation would be, I'd want them to be seen the same day by a specialist if, if the scenario is, is as severe as, as the patient is describing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you've got somebody who's blind, then that's a, uh, an emergency. So, uh, yeah, you would want that dealt with as quick as possible. Perfect. So I think that sums up most of the investigations and management for a patient who's presented with a suspected optic neuropathy. So after our very short break, Luke is going to be answering questions on England slash British Lions rugby. Well, we all know that consultants are experts in their fields, but what else occupies the brilliant minds of our consultants that isn't medicine? Each episode, I'm laying down the gauntlet to each consultant who comes on the show to give me a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat being it can't be related to medicine. Now, Luke, I know we mentioned at the top of the show, but what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? I've chosen English rugby um, because it's uh, one of the few subjects outside medicine uh, that I might be able to answer some questions on. Uh, so uh, so I, I, I enjoy cycling, uh, enjoy spending time with my family, um, but I don't, I'm not an expert on the Tour de France or anything else like that. So, uh, so I'm, I'm, afraid, I'm a bit narrow outside of work, I'm afraid. Well, the last sporting exploit we had on the show was Dr. Benoit Shah, president of the British Heart Valve Society. And he said he represented Jersey at under-14s cricket. Do you have anything to match that? I'm a national collegiate champion at American football. Um, oh. So uh, when I was at Southampton University in 1993, I was uh, a linebacker uh, in the championship winning Southampton Stags team. And we were actually pretty good. We had quite a few Americans. We, had, we did actually have a chap who played rugby for the British and Irish Lions, a chap called Mark Taylor. Um, so we were, we were quite good. Very good, very good. I'm surprised you didn't pick American football as your as your. Well, American team. football in the in the late '80s, I might I might have answered a few questions on, but it's quite it's, that sounds a, a bit nerdy, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe possibly too niche even for Wikipedia to have uh, <laughs> to have that on record. Um, so, 
Here's the format of the quiz. This is how we play. There are 10 questions in total. If you answer immediately, you score two points. But if you're not sure, you can take the four multiple choice options. And if you get it correct, you'll get one point. So 10 questions coming up on English International Rugby. Are you ready? Ready, I'm ready to go. England have contested in every Rugby World Cup since the tournament began in 1987. But how many times have they reached the final? Uh, four. Four is correct for two points. Okay, question number two. In January 2021, England named their squad for the Six Nations, but which club has the highest number of players named in the squad? Saracens. Correct again for another two points. Question number three. England have played their home matches almost exclusively at Twickenham since 1910. But since 1991, they've played at five other grounds. Now, this one's slightly different. If you can name three, I'll give you two points. And if you can name one, you get one point. All right. Old Trafford. Um, I think they played at Hudders Huddersfield against Holland once. And uh, so just run the question where they played in the UK. It's since 1991, they've played their home matches at five other grounds. Okay, so Old Trafford, Newcastle, and... I'll give it to you. You already said, you did already say Huddersfield, which is correct. So it was Old Trafford and the Huddersfield McAlpine Stadium. Oh, of course, yeah. And I'll give you Newcastle. It's St. James's Park in Newcastle. Yeah. This one's the easy one. Which song is traditionally sung by England fans when supporting the team? Spring Low Sweet Chariot. Correct. With so far eight from eight. And it's question number five. It's in the record books of overall matches for England, which includes Six Nations, Rugby World Cup and Test matches. Who or which team has England played the most number of times? Scotland. Correct. Again, for another two points. Right, this is a who am I question. I first represented England in 1993. I was the first player to captain the British Lions twice. Martin Johnson. Oh, it didn't even need <laughs> the rest of the question. I mean, he probably is the best forward that England have ever had, but still correct for two points. Question number seven, which England player from the 1990s onwards has most international caps? Uh, Jason Leonard. Absolutely correct. And it's 14 from 14 points. And funny enough, Jason Lennon has 114 caps. Question number eight. Which England player is the top point scorer? Johnny Wilkinson. Correct. Could we be seeing the first ever clean sweep on the pre Grand Slam. It could be a full-on Grand Slam. And uh, absolutely correct. Johnny Wilkinson with... 1,179 points for England. Question number nine. Which team has inflicted the greatest defeat against England at Twickenham? South Africa. It is South Africa. Oh, I really thought I had you there. Question number 10. Who is the current England captain? Owen Farrell. And that completes the Grand Slam. Dr Luke Bonetto scores a maximum of 20 points out of 20. And 
although we haven't mentioned this on the show the last couple of weeks, that does put you um, at top of the pile. So you will be taking home a pre-Paces podcast mug. Oh, fantastic. So that only leaves us to finish the show by thanking Dr. Luke Bonetto, consultant neuro-ophthalmologist at the Bristol Royal Infirmary for talking us through this critically important PACES station of optic neuropathy. So Dr. Luke Bonetto, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed, Sam, and uh, good luck, everybody. (laughs) So hopefully that covers every aspect of optic neuropathy for all of our beloved listeners. It's always a pleasure to bring you these episodes. So if you like the podcast, please do like, comment and subscribe. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us via the usual social media channels on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Prepaces Podcast. And on email, it's prepacespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. <laughs>